The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Couple of things before we get started. I did want to mention, I forgot to mention last service. You heard in the video announcement, Amy's got a night uh, in preparation for Lent, a worship night, February 15th. February 17th, Christians all over the world will begin uh, to walk through Lent, this 40-day season of fasting that heads toward the cross. And for me, uh, I'm, I'm going to read a book called Journey to the Cross. Some of our staff are reading that by Paul Tripp. If you want to join along with us, you can. Like with any book, we would say you measure those books according to the scripture. But we want to read this to kind of focus our mind's attention, our heart's affection on the cross. It's called Journey to the Cross by Paul David Tripp. Or you might have another book that you would enjoy, but just want to mention that to you. And also, we want to take a moment just to say thank you to someone. Back in the back, one of our ministry assistants named Kelsey Van. Kelsey, would you stand up for us, please? Let's give Kelsey a hand. Uh, Kelsey has worked with us for several years, and now she's moving on to another opportunity for employment but for the past several years, just in a way that really honors the Lord, she has faithfully and consistently done excellent work. She's grown in the Lord as a woman of God. She's been a blessing to our church office, to our missionaries, and to our body as a whole. So again, just want to say thanks, Kelsey. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much. And, and now I want to invite uh, just to come down here with me. One of my dear friends, one of my favorite people in the world, a hero of mine named Charlie Stoner. Would y'all welcome Charlie? And Charlie and his wife Vivian are, uh, they've been TBC missionaries. They were in Brazil for 38 years. They've come back here and served here the last 11 years. And now uh, it is a great honor and privilege for me to present Charlie as a candidate to be an elder at TBC. So, in about, um, in about seven minutes, he's going to try to share, uh, you're probably 55, I think, 55 years of an amazing life. So, Charlie, tell us how you ended up at this place. Well, it's good to sit down this time. Yeah. <laughs> you already heard my name, Charlie Stoner. I'm not from Temple originally, but I was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, into a Mennonite home. My family moved to Alabama when I was seven, where I grew up on a chicken farm. As a lad of 11, I became a believer in Jesus Christ during a revival in our small country church. I did my last two years of high school in a Christian boarding school in North Carolina, in Asheville, Ben Lippin School, then completed Bible college in Birmingham. Through all those years, I felt led toward cross-cultural ministry. The Lord was calling me. What next? Well, I wanted to teach Bible cross-culturally somewhere, so decided to get more theological training. And that's when I enrolled at Dallas Seminary in 1966. I was about 11 years ahead of a pastor named Gary DeSalvo at Dallas Seminary. I didn't know him then. But one day, at the beginning of my third year at Dallas, a friend from Bible college days came by and introduced me to his gorgeous cousin, Vivian Hitchcock, an elementary school music teacher. We were married three weeks after I graduated with my master's in theology from Dallas, 
and we celebrated 50 years of marriage just this last summer. Thank you. Vivian and her family had moved to Temple from Oklahoma when she was just six years old. By the early 70s, Vivian's parents had helped start TBC that was then known as, you know, Bible Chapel. In fact, Vivian's dad, Gene Hitchcock, was an elder, along with John Jez, when in the summer of 1981, Bible Chapel called a young Dallas grad, Gary DeSalvo, to be the church's third pastor. Things began coming together for Vivian and me and our calling, and soon after our wedding, we were accepted and appointed by the mission agency Crossworld to serve in Brazil, South America. Calvary Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania became our primary supporting church, ordained me and commissioned us to serve in, mission in Brazil. We completed an eight-month missionary internship in Detroit, then raised our support team about six months or a year. Apparently, I began to become a Texan whenever we visited Vivian's family in Temple. And Bible Chapel folks began praying for us and eventually helped support us. Forty-nine years ago, this month, we flew on a Boeing 707 to the tropical city of Belém, Pará, Brazil, located at the mouth of the mighty Amazon River. There we stood at 3 a.m., January 21st, gathering our bags, sweating, swatting mosquitoes, and ready to study Portuguese. Much happened during those 38 years in Brazil from 1972 until 2010 when we moved back to Temple. For instance, God gave us three wonderful children, two sons and a daughter, all born in Brazil during those years. All married now, of course, and two families live in Arkansas and the other in Washington State. We have a total of seven clever grandkids, three girls and four boys, aged 10 to 20, or 20 to 10, however you want to figure. Although they live far away, we pray a lot and strive to have godly influence in their lives. Our primary ministry in Brazil was leadership training at the National Church's Bible College for 25 years total. We also served in an international school for 10 more years and were in mission administration as well. We forged wonderful friendships with many Brazilians, and we worked with gobs of missionary colleagues from the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and Europe. Every four years was a home ministry year in either Temple or, or Pennsylvania. In later years, we came for shorter periods to the U.S. A favorite verse through the years for us has been Philippians 1.6. being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until Friday. No, until the day of Jesus Christ. God certainly performed far more of his good work through us so far than we could ever have thought or imagined. May he be praised. Amen. For example, by his grace, we got to learn another language and culture. By his grace, raised our three children in another country. Saw them educated in Brazilian schools, mission boarding school, U.S. public schools and universities. One is now a web designer. 
another an educator, and the third a scientist. Got his PhD in toxicology from, uh, what is that university down in College Station? Thank you. By God's grace, we were able to encourage a good number of Brazilians and see them prepared for gospel ministry in the churches in northern Brazil. By His grace, we served our local church, in, both in Sunday school as teachers, I as a speaker in the church often, and also deacon. They don't have elders there, but it was a deacon. We worked ourselves, uh, well, let me say this. We served one year, 2004, as interpreters for Gary and Bev DiSalvo and Jean Martin when they came for a conference at the seminary. And in the end, we had worked ourselves out of a job by transferring theological education to Brazilian leadership. And what have we been doing since returning to Temple? Eleven years ago, Vivian was privileged to help care for her dear mother, who went to be with the Lord just uh, 20 months ago now, at the age of 95. I've done discipleship with a number of men. I prepare and email a monthly Bible study chart in both Portuguese and English, presently working in Romans and 1 Corinthians. And I enjoy vegetable, vegetable gardening to share the produce with neighbors and friends. I sell enough to buy some Ziplocs. <laughs> since, since returning to Temple, we've also worked with TBC wonderful senior adults called Pace Setters. I lead TBC's Examine Life, uh, Life Sunday School class. Uh, we've been meeting by Zoom since March, turning out well. We both participate in TBC men's and ladies' Bible studies, and we are in Harry Adams' small group. I'm also privileged to serve on the TBC Global Outreach Team. Occasionally, I write for the Temple Telegram's Pastor's Corner. Chase, to serve as a TBC elder would be a high privilege, but an awesome responsibility. Vivian and I love this church. We appreciate all we, you've done for us through your faithful prayers and support for over 40 years. According to my age, I would most likely qualify to be a TBC elder. I'm not sure about the rest of the qualifications. Hmm. But if chosen to serve, I will endeavor to trust the Lord to use me as he desires, hopefully, to bring glory to his holy name. Meanwhile, may we all continue to surrender to him, experience great community together, and help accomplish God's mission on earth. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. I, uh, I said this last hour, and I'll say it again because it's true. I just got so much respect for Charlie Stoner and for Vivian. They are such an amazing couple, and we've got the privilege of asking Charlie to serve, to be one of our elders. So if you have questions about that, um, you can ask those to me or another elder for the next couple of weeks. But if, honestly, if you just heard what I just heard, there really shouldn't be any questions. Uh, Charlie, if you look up in a picture dictionary, elder, that's Charlie, both in his age and his qualifications. Um, so Charlie, I, I want to pray for you. God, thank you. Thank you for people like the stoners. 
Um, your word talks about them uh, when it speaks of the saints of old and it talks about people of whom the world was not worthy. Well, all their life, uh, they've given it to you for your glory and they continue to do that. And so God, we thank you for the privilege to serve along people such as these. And Father, pray as we seek to lead the church in a way that honors you, that you'd guide us, Lord, that you would help us to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's say thanks to Charlie one more time. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're right in the middle of the chapter. And as we look, Paul has been encouraging the church over and over and over to be unified. And now he's questioning them about some of their division. So I just want to read a few verses, and we're going to be in 17 through 34 of 1 Corinthians 11. So Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. See, when they came together for the Lord's Supper, it wasn't um, a small cracker and a small bit of juice. They would actually have a meal together. And when they did it, he said, you're not coming together for the Lord's Supper. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul begins this section with a pretty hard challenge to the church in Corinth. And, and Paul's not talking about well-intentioned people He's talking about people who are not caring for others. I had a friend who was a well-intentioned guy. He worked at a plant in Southeast Texas. And some mornings on the way to the plant, he would think, I'll get donuts for my friends. So well-intentioned, he would get a dozen donuts from Southern Made Donuts. And he would start driving to the plant and the smell of the donuts would hit his nose and he would eat a couple because what's a couple, right? There's 10 left for his friends, and then as he would keep going, sometimes there was traffic, and he would eat a couple more. He said one day, he got to the plant, and without knowing it, he'd eat seven of the dozen donuts. He said, and then I felt really awkward about taking five in, so I just ate those other five in the car. <laughs> See, that's not what's happening here, though. It's not a well-intentioned mistake. People are eating and letting others go hungry. And so Paul, who's been talking about unity, says there are divisions among you. I've heard there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. And then in verse 19, he says something that might sound a little different than what he's been saying. He's been beating the drum of unity over and over and over. And then he says in verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you 
may be recognized. Now, some of you read that and you're excited because you're tired of hearing about unity. Aha, uh-huh, you see? You see? You guys have been talking about unity, but there's got to be some division because after all, I'm right and people who disagree with me are wrong. If Michael Scott were that guy, he would read this text and go, how the turntables, right? See, it's not that there can never be divisions, but when there are, they ought to be about really big things. It's not that we would never divide. We would over things like the Lordship of Christ, right? We gather and we believe that Jesus is Lord. We would divide over the authority of Scripture. We believe that this word is infallible. It's from God. We would divide over security of our salvation in Christ. When we're his, we can't be taken out of his hand. But we live in a culture and sometimes even in the broader church, people will divide over anything they're just itching to this week in the gospel coalition tim shorey wrote an article talking about these divisions and he said this we need to learn better how to coexist humbly and teachably to do this we need to be more willing to admit that in most disagreements we may very well be wrong well that that never occurred to me right By wrong, I don't mean totally wrong. I mean wrong in some way, maybe in opinion or attitude or word choice, perhaps in emphasis or tone or grasp of all the relevant information or even just the timing. We should enter every dispute confident there will be something for us to learn, something to confess, something we didn't know as we ought to have known it. The idea that I am not all-knowing should be more than a statement of the obvious. It should be a conscious, functioning conviction that humbles me at all times. Fools have no self-doubt. But the wise are always learning. The problem is not that there are ever divisions. It's that we're so ready to divide over anything. And for the Corinthians, it was over something silly like status who they were, what they could bring to the table. When you come together, verse 20, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, another goes hungry while one gets drunk. Don't you have houses? And then again, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What a hard question. They were gathering for this common feast, this actual meal that they would gather in someone's home for or maybe in another building or maybe outside they would gather to eat. And it was supposed to be them gathering for a meal together at the foot of the cross, but that's not what was happening. It would have been modeled after Passover. But when they gathered, what was happening is you got some people who are bringing takeout from Chiefs, some people who are eating from that restaurant Mark Rojas likes to call Chipotle, and some, they had these really nice fancy thing called charterucherie boards, right? Some people don't know how to pronounce that. It's charterucherie. Nice spread of cheese and meat and olives and crackers. And they're just lapping it up while there are brothers and sisters in Christ that maybe they got three stale crackers or maybe they don't have anything at all and meant to come together. They're just not caring. Paul says, don't you have homes to eat in? 
Can you imagine, they're maybe at one of these feasts and they're reading this new letter from Paul and somebody's just polishing off his last bite of thick steak while his brothers don't have anything to eat and they get to this passage in chapter 11. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Takes out his napkin, no, no. What in the world are they doing? They've turned what was meant to be a time of loving one another and worshiping and they've made it into a show of what they have with no regard for their brothers or sisters. We're gonna see that reiterated later in the text. This meal we're about to partake in is meant to remember Jesus. It's a remembrance of the cross in the same way that the Passover was a remembrance of the children of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, but that isn't all it was. It was a remembrance of the story that that this cross becomes the center of. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what was delivered to you that he was betrayed. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is meant to remember Jesus. It's meant to remember Jesus. And Jesus taught about this, actually. In Luke chapter 24, he taught about who he was. And it's certainly about the cross, but that's not all it's about. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is risen from the dead, and there are two disciples that are walking out of Jerusalem on the way to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them, but they don't know that it's him. Verse 15 of Luke 24 says, while they were still talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They didn't know who he was. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding as you walk and talk? And so they said, are you the only person who's coming from Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened? He says, what things? And so they tell him about how this rabbi Jesus, as they were following, that they thought was the savior of the world, he died. He says, moreover, some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and they didn't find his body and they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who who were with us, went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. They weren't sure. And so Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what the whole Old Testament was building up to, that the Christ would suffer. So Jesus explains this to them and he he decides he'll go on when they get to Emmaus and they say, no, no, come in and eat with us. They still don't understand that it's him. 
And then verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. He broke the bread and then verse 31 says, and their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he was teaching us on the road? And they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. See, Luke chapter 24 teaches us something about how Jesus taught the Bible, but it also shows us not just the Christocentric form of the word, that the whole scripture is centered around Jesus Christ, but also that sometimes God opens our eyes in the breaking of the bread, and that partners with the teaching that we hear. We, the church, need both Bible and bread. We need the word, but we also need the wine. The bread without the word will only make us superstitious, it can turn this into something like a rabbit's foot, like good luck. But then the word without the bread separates teaching from community. It resides only in the abstract, not in the everyday. We need both to understand together and to partake. Because if you only ever know a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but you say, well, that doesn't affect how I am with other people. If that never boils down to something in the corporate that you're loving others, serving others, caring for others, you may have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but according to scripture, it's not a very good one. And so we need to come and as we take this bread, together we remember Jesus. As we take the cup, together we remember Jesus. And you may have come out of a place where Maybe you weren't a Christian growing up and you never did a ceremony like this. Maybe you were part of a denomination or a church that didn't treat the bread and the cup like a very big deal or maybe it was a really big deal. We, we do it as a solemn time together to remember Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Paul wants the church in Corinth to do the same thing and so he warns them. He says in verse 27, whoever therefore, whoever therefore eats the cup or eats the bread and drinks the cup rather in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. That's a big deal. Then verse 28, let a person examine himself and then so eat the bread and drink the cup. So we pause. We pause to examine ourselves and we ought to do that. And we ought to do that for the general sins that we struggle with. But for the Corinthians, there's something real specific Paul wants them to pause and examine themselves about. See, we want to do that for our sins. What have I been wrestling with? What have I been struggling with? What do I need to pause and remember that Jesus died to free me from? But for the Corinthians, it's really, really specific. He says in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And scholars do go back and forth a little bit on what this means, but for most, it's connected to the context it's in, discerning the body. You're coming and eating your great meal while your brothers and sisters are suffering and you're watching them and you don't care. Either they don't know the people that they're supposed to be in Christ with or they know and they just don't care. 
they're just about consumption. They're unaware of how their brothers and sisters are or they don't care. They haven't discerned the body of Christ. See, Paul puts supremacy on loving one another. And you might have heard love one another so much from us as we've read 1 Corinthians 11, you'd wanna roll your eyes at it, but don't roll your eyes at this. As verse 30 says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Verse 31 Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. If we judged ourselves, if we examined ourselves according to the word, and if we, by God's grace and through the power of his Holy Spirit, said no, all of life is gonna be about loving others for the glory of God, sharing Christ with others, living for the glory of Jesus Christ, laying my life down for others. You'd have more assurance than anybody else if we judged ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. But then verse 31, Verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Why? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. So even in this hard text, we see the love of God because the discipline of God protects the people of God from the wrath of God. He keeps us in Christ. Discipline is so that we'll be made like Jesus. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. When we come together, it ought not be about discipline. It ought to be about love and worship, about magnifying Jesus with our affection and our attention. And he says about these other things, I'll give you instructions when I come. So what's the point? that when we gather in this place, both the word and the bread go together and they're both meant to help us fix our eyes on Jesus, to remember Jesus and to be shaped by him. And so today we are going to partake together. Because like Paul told the church in Corinth, as I Received from the Lord, I deliver to you. The night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we want to take this bread together and as we do, we wanna remember Jesus Christ who died for our sins, who rose from the dead to give life to all who believe and to bring us together in Christ, unified in Christ. So let's take the bread together. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes so as we take the cup together we proclaim that Jesus died for our sins let's take the cup together as well father we are grateful for Jesus Christ who lived and died and who rose from the dead who this book directs our affections toward 
God, Jesus Christ has done so much to save us. Lord, I pray, God, that our minds would get such a glimpse into that. Our hearts would be so moved by that, but we can't help but share with our neighbors the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. And would you work powerfully to save many in our city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.